0: questions, send them in, we'll try and answer them at the end, otherwise I'll answer them at a later date. But let's come before the Lord now. Heavenly Father, please speak to us. Please move us by your Spirit. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to your church this morning. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Uh, kids I have a couple of brushes in my house and I'm thinking of two brushes in particular one of which uh, is my toothbrush and one of which uh, lives next to the toilet and these are both brushes but they have very different jobs all right you can't mix them up one is for one purpose and one is for another purpose my toothbrush is consecrated have you heard that word before consecrated it means that it's it's set apart it's dedicated it's something special it's got a special job to do and the same goes for the toilet brush it has a very important purpose but it has a very different but special job to do and we can't we, you can't take one and use it for the other because it doesn't work that way it becomes unclean it, it becomes I'm sure you can your mind can fill in the gaps it's not a good idea to mix these two things up they're dedicated for a special purpose and now if I use my toothbrush on something other than my mouth I would need to like I don't know maybe I clean out a crack in something some grout or something but I wouldn't like then it's been soiled right it's been dirty it's been it's been used for something that it wasn't for And I would need to clean it properly before I'd used it for its main purpose again, cleaning my teeth. I would need to cleanse it probably with boiling water, maybe with some mouthwash or something antiseptic to try and make sure that it is perfectly clean for its job of cleaning my teeth. Now, just as toothbrushes are consecrated for cleaning your teeth, we are consecrated and set apart for God. God has saved his people and he has cleansed them, purified them, set them apart, and he has a special job for them to do. But here's the problem. We don't want to get mixed up with the unclean things. And what we have this morning is a story of a man who was extra specially set apart for a job and he was not remaining set apart. He thought it was okay. If you imagine the toothbrush um, analogy again, he thought it was okay to go and rub it in the dirt before using it to clean his teeth. He was not remaining set apart like God had set apart Samson for a job. As we come to talk about this story of Samson, there's some interesting things going on in the text. In some sense, Samson is almost the climax of Judges. But at the same time, it's also one of the lowest points, (laughs) strangely enough. It's a real point where a lot of the themes of Judges come together. And the text itself of of the story of Samson over four chapters is very highly structured. So let me break down the structure a little bit for you. Firstly, there's two parts to it. Two parts, two segments, and each of them climax with Samson killing a bunch of Philistines and a comment that Samson, Samson judged Israel for 20 years. So two main sections, each with a clear end point. But each of those two main sections has five feats of strength in each of them. So, there's ten altogether, five in each. So, this is really handy because I've got two hands and each of them has five fingers on it. So, we've got our ten feats of strength in two sections. The Spirit of God comes upon Samson three times in the story. But interestingly, all three of them happen in the first five feats. But lastly, there is another set of structure in the story of Samson, and that is his life unfolds in basically four episodes centred around four different women. So as you look at each episode of his life, each of them is directly connected to a key woman. And so there is uh, the mother, there's the wife, there is the prostitute, and the seductress. And so this morning we're mainly looking at the mother and the wife, but the story of the wife flows into uh, the next chapter in chapter uh, 15 and then um, we'll, which we'll get to next week so to recap samson story of samson two big sections five feats of strength in each and there is two key women in each so for the ease of pe- preaching through the passage in manageable sections we're basically going to talk about the first two women today in chapter 13 and 14 in two episodes and the episode of the wife will continue next week so, episode one, the barren mother. Episode one, the barren mother. Opening the stage for this first episode is a familiar refrain, as you might have grown to, to recognize as we've made our way through Judges. You hear it time and time again. In verse one, it says, A certain man of Zorah, named Manoah, from the clan of the Danites, oh, sorry, we've skipped. There we go. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. This sounds familiar. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. You might remember the cycle in Judges. They turn away from God. God gives his people over. They turn back to God, realizing that they've made a huge mistake. And then God delivers them. We know that we're deep down the spiral of judges because now we're up to a situation where we're in the longest oppression yet, 40 years. You might remember back in the day, 40 years was actually a period of rest that they would have from their oppression. But now things are so bad that they're experiencing generation of oppression. But interestingly here, we don't get a call for deliverance. In the other times, the people have recognize their their plight and they've turned to God and they've said, God, please save us. But here we don't even get a call. They've turned so far away from the Lord, they will not even look to him in distress. But the Lord never forsakes his people. And so the Lord acts. And that's what happens in verse 2. We see what is happening with the key players in this earlier part of Samson's life. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah, from the clan of the Danites, had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. So this is a barren woman, is the language that the the scriptures often use, a barren woman. Now, a barren woman is a familiar motif in the Bible, barren meaning that their wombs are barren, they're unable to have children, as the NIV uh, put it. If you were reading from the start of the Bible till this chapter here, you would have already heard about Baron Sarah, Baron Rebecca, Baron Rachel. And there are at least two more key barren women to follow, including Baron Hannah and Baron Elizabeth. And so what's the significance of barrenness in the scriptural unfolding of the story? I think we're used to barrenness in some way because we live in an age where there's two key things have kind of come together to. To undermine our view of how marriage and children go together we've got the advent of contraception and we've got a godless ideology in the world and so most christians believe that there is an appropriate limited place for contraception but when you put this technological innovation together with a godless ideology you end up with a world in which marriage and children are separated and they're not seen to go hand in hand in God's design, these two things are inseparable. Yet it is not uncommon to hear about couples who choose not to have children, or unmarried people trying uh, not uh, unmarried people trying to have children outside of marriage. And so we're not unfamiliar; we're not we're not we're used to hearing about these kinds of things. It's not doesn't seem weird to us. But when we read the story of the scriptures and we hear these people talking about a married person with barrenness it's meant to sound unusual it's meant to sound like there's something wrong and so i'm not going to delve any further into the depths of the the modern ideology and how that's affected us but i i need you to understand in order to help you understand this passage that having babies is intentionally directly connected to marriage in god's design and so because Manoah is married because he has because they are, he and his wife are together. There is the expectation that there will be fruitfulness that comes from that marriage. So, there, she is in a grave situation of physical brokenness. They'll each feel as though there's something wrong in their marriage. They will wonder if they've done something to incur God's displeasure. They will they will wonder. It's God punishing me. They will feel a dreadful po- uh, fear of the future. What's going to happen to our family line? Is it going to die out? Uh, are we going to be able to, to provide for ourselves in our old age? Or are we going to be destitute when we can't look after ourselves anymore? There is... It was quite a different situation, especially in their agrarian society. They couldn't go down to the Centrelink office and get a pension. So there, there was great... Concern with the fact that they didn't have children yearning for something that they could not have and this barrenness is a part of the fall because sin and death and corruption have entered the world now sometimes we have sickness sometimes we have deformities sometimes we have something wrong in our physiology that prevents us from fulfilling this wonderful and beautiful picture associated with marriage and this has actually been something of my journey and Laura and my journey in that we were unable to have kids for 10 years. We went through all the questions and the sorrow of trying to come to grips with this aspect of God's will for us. And now in our case, this was a temporary trial, but because obviously Elijah and Olivia are here, but that is not this guarantee that God will always open the womb. There are many stories for whom infertility is a prelude to god doing something amazing but that's not always the case for some it is a permanent thing and god is good in the midst of that trial even in the midst of the difficulty whatever you're facing now and that includes the trials that we're having we might be having around facing children god is with you god is caring for you he's bringing together a wonderful future. Even perhaps through infertility, through singleness sometimes, through the loss of unborn children, perhaps through having disabled children. There's a mixed joy there of the joy of having a child, but also there is a burden that comes with that. There is a trial. The Lord is with his people to comfort and guide them through these difficulties. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn they shall be comforted now it is hard to talk from the pulpit about these matters in a way that is uh, addresses uh, the sensitivity around these things and I know that you might be particularly affected by some of these issues and if you would like help dressing them with the salve of the gospel then I would love to talk to you about it but coming back to Manoah and his wife we don't know how long they were barren for, how long they were trying for children. But I'm sure you can see that the situation they were in was not good. They would have been expecting, um, they, sorry, they would have been expecting to have children. They would have prayed and mourned when it turned out that they couldn't, and they would have tried to accept their fate. Yet in this case, God was going to use their barrenness for a special episode in salvation history. Suffering is never wasted by God. And this trial was for a purpose. And so God breaks in to their story, their trial, their difficulty, and fills it with life. Where there was no life, he brought life. It reminds us of the time when the Holy Spirit broke in and with the formless chaos of the world, he formed and created the world. He brought life to this world before there was no life. So the angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Here a special son is announced. Who will it be? Things have gotten pretty bad for Israel. They're in a terrible state. They're under 40 years of oppression. They they are as well as that just under the general curse of humanity, knowing sin and death, corruption. Yet here is the announcement of a special son. Who will he be? The signs point to him being something amazing because he's announced by angels and as we're going to talk about in a moment he has a special consecration on his life the angel explains in verses four and five now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink that you do not eat anything unclean you'll become pregnant and you'll have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a nazarite dedicated to god from the womb he will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. So this child will be a Nazarite. But what's more, what's even better, is that he will begin to save Israel. This is good news. So what is a Nazarite? I'm guessing that most of us on our day day don't think about what Nazarites are. The first thing to say is that a Nazarite and a Nazarene different things. So a Nazarene is somebody who comes from Nazareth, so we're not talking about that. We're talking about Nazarites. Nazarites are a a type of people who are undergoing a vow to the Lord. And so the explanation for how a Nazarite vow was meant to work out is in Numbers chapter 6. And there's a few key things that Nazarites would do as they were undertaking their vow, they were not allowed to drink any alcohol or grape-based product. They had to grow their hair as long as they were under the vow, not cut it. They couldn't touch dead bodies. Now, if for some reason you uh, something happened and you maybe you touched a dead body accidentally, then it reset and you had to go and shave your head and you had to start your vow all over again. And this could be men or women. And this was a special way that they could kind of dedicate themselves to the Lord. We don't know exactly why. Maybe they would dedicate themselves as an as a, as a act of thankfulness. I will, I will you know, serve the Lord as a Nazarite for a year or something, as an act of thankfulness and devotion to the Lord. Perhaps it would be if they were seeking something from the Lord's hand, they would devote themselves to kind of like fasting to the Lord for a time to approach Him in prayer. We don't exactly know. It was strange here because there would be a time period. It would be for a limited period of time. But here Samson is being a Nazarite from the womb. Even so much so that his mum was not even allowed to drink or or touch anything unclean during the time of the pregnancy. So the word, interestingly, Nazarite means to separate. These Nazarites are people who are separated, set apart to serve God, to fulfill a vow to the Lord. Now, all God's people should be holy. All of us should be consecrated to the Lord. But Samson was going to be an extra special representation of being dedicated to the Lord. And he looks like he's on track to be the greatest hero the world has ever seen. Who knows, maybe he'll be the one to undo the curse. He was announced by angels. He was going to be separated to the Lord. Maybe he'll crush Satan's head. But instead we have... Uh, sorry, so the miraculous conception happens. And I'm just going to run through quickly the story of the birth. Samson's parents think that it was. this was going to be strange. What follows next is this series of conversations between uh, Angel and Samson's mum and, uh, and Manoah. And... The angel delivers the message directly to Manoah's wife at at least she thinks it's an angel she's not quite sure so the wife then tells the husband then the husband goes oh that's interesting lord can you please send that guy back again so we can ask him more questions god says okay sends the angel to the wife again and then the wife has to run off and get the husband bring him over and then the angel says listen to what i told your wife the first time so, I, I, I don't know why the, the Lord acquiesced to their request to send the angel again, but the angel didn't reveal any more information. Um, it, could, we could, it leads us to suspect that maybe Manoah wasn't listening to his wife, or potentially, alternately, Ma, Manoah, um, the wife hadn't properly communicated everything to the husband. But either way, the angel basically says, yes, it's a special child, you have to stick to the regulations. Manoah then goes, okay, I want to show you hospitality in the Eastern style. You wait here. I'm going to go and kill a goat and dress the goat and prepare a meal. But the angel says, no, I'm not going to eat anything. But if you sacrifice something to the Lord, then um, I will stick around for that. And so that's what Manoah does. He prepares a sacrifice. And then as the sacrifice is being burnt up, the angel goes up in the smoke of the sacrifice and so this time they know for sure it was definitely an angel there we go Manoah did not realize that it was the angel of the Lord so he prepared the offering uh, and on the next the next slide uh there it says the as the flame uh, as the flame went up Blazed up from the altar toward heaven, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame. Seeing this, Manoah and his wife fell with their faces to the ground. But there's an interesting insertion there that I didn't read, which is he offered... um, Where is it? I've lost it. There must be a weird translation difference here. Some of your translations will say something like, he offered it to the Lord of Wonders. Anyway, moving on, Manoah and his wife are scared because they think they have seen the Lord. They think they have seen the Lord, at least Manoah does, and he thinks, now I'm going to die because nobody can look on God and live. But his wife is the voice of reason and says, look, do you think that God would show himself to us, give us a promise to have a child, then accept our offering and then kill us? Like, that doesn't make sense. And so um, Manoah is is reassured that he's not going to die because he's seen the angel. Then the baby arrives, verses 24 and 25. The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him and the spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he was in Manasseh. Uh, sorry Mahana Dan between Zora and Esh. So Samson's mother was the barren one, But God opened the womb to send a special child who would begin to deliver Israel from 40 years of oppression. He was set apart from conception for God. He had a special job to do. God used a chosen woman to bring this to pass with a chosen son. A special son dedicated to God. And the Lord's spirit was on him and working in him. Now, I don't know if you're noticing some... Similarities with some other, another person that shows up in the scriptures? Well, we'll come to that in a moment. But what we have next is the second episode. We've had got our high expectations about what this child will be. What is going to happen? And we move into episode two, the sabotaging wife. So our high expectations are immediately dashed. In these first verses, like the rest of judges, our hope of true faithfulness and full salvation for God's people quickly turn to ash. Samson went down to Timnah, so he's going down in the Philistine land, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah, now get her for me as my wife. Now, this isn't this isn't um, rude, he's, this is just how it comes out in the English, but he's saying, can you please go and arrange a marriage between myself and this woman that I saw, who is a daughter of the Philistines. Israel is supposed to be the set-apart people of God. They're not supposed to intermarry with people who don't belong to God. Now, we don't get the explicit provision, don't marry the Philistines, but we've very clearly shown the principle that they're not to mix in marriage, especially with the Canaanites. They're meant to be separated and different from the Canaanites. But here is, here is Samson, who is trying to enter into a marriage with an outsider. The problem not being ethnic issues, the problem being that she doesn't follow God. She belongs, she's, she's, she's a non-believer in our modern speech. She doesn't belong to Jesus, if we were to put it that way. She's not of God's people. And the people of God in Israel have been perpetually warned not to mix with people who were not God's people not to worship their gods, not to um, live among them, not to marry them. And because this has happened over the course of Judges, it's getting harder and harder to tell the difference between the the Israelites and the Canaanites, the Israelites and other enemies of God. And so now here is the Messiah figure of Israel at the time, this chosen one, this set-apart son. He's in enemy territory, not doing deeds of uh, mighty deeds you know beating back the the Philistines and triumphing over them in war they're not he's not down there delivering God's people he's down there fraternizing with the enemy and and he wants to marry somebody from the other side and this is just a bad choice in general but it's also foolish this is he doesn't fit with what the psalm 1 says which is blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. He's saying they're not found with them. They're not mixing with them. We're going to obviously mix with people who are silly. We're going to, we're going to interact with people. We're going to come across people in this world. Uh, but the scriptures set forth this ideal of basically good, the, the principle of bad company corrupts good morals. The idea of like who you hang around with is going to affect who, what you become like. And here is Samson hanging around with the enemy. And so from this opening scene in Samson's ministry, we have a clear indication that while he was a chosen deliverer of God and God's spirit was in him, he was a foolish man. Samson was fraternizing with the enemy in an unhealthy way. And not just that, he will not listen to his mother and father. He will not heed their instruction. He will not honor his mother and father because understandably they're against it. They say... Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all the people, all our people, that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. So Samson pushes for his bad choice if not outright sinful, which I think it is pretty clear that it is, it was certainly very foolish. And this exemplified the fact that he didn't honour his parents, didn't listen to their wise counsel. He was intent on doing what was right in his own eyes. And look, he's like most young men. All the men here, I'm sure, have gone through stages, if not in the midst of it now, where we are tempted to pursue our own ideals to go after what we want especially in the passion of youth he's very focused on girls and he has trouble setting his desires in a good direction at least i suppose we should be thankful that he wants to do it the right way and get married but unfortunately even that will fall away before the end of samson's story he doesn't have a care for what god wants but but god is working through samson nonetheless It says that this was from God because God was trying to look for an opportunity, was looking for an opportunity against the the Philistines. God was going to work through this poor choice. So then the question becomes hang on a sec. If this is from the Lord, but it's also sinful, how does this work? How can something be from the Lord if it's sinful? Well, as we've studied the Bible, We've tried to find different ways to try and understand this. And there's a great summary um, in one of the historic uh, confessions of the church that I think summarizes it really well. It says, God from all eternity did by most wise and holy counsel of his own free will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. So everything that happens, happens because it's under God's plan and under God's ordained way of the world unfolding, of history unfolding. Yet, even though everything is under God's sovereign plan, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures. So, God did not cause anybody to sin, God does not make anybody sin, or as uh, I think Jesus says, God does not tempt anybody. I think that's Paul actually. God does not tempt anybody. And God is not, we're not all walking around like robots, as the, as the, um, as the straw man argument goes, that we're, we're not all walking around like robots. God uses, works with our will and desires, His, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures. So, God is using Samson, God is working through Samson, and Samson's bad choices, God, but God is not causing him to make bad choices. And we can think of this when we think of Judas. Judas was, this, was the son of destruction. He was destined, It was fate, so to speak, that he would betray Jesus. It was, but it was all in God's plan. It was part of what God was doing in the world. And you might also remember the story of Joseph. Remember Joseph being betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery and going down into Egypt? But God did that so that Joseph would be in Egypt, so that he could save the Egyptians, so that he could save his family. So, God was using Samson and his foolishness to carry out his plan. And so, they're going back and forth in a few trips down to Timnah to arrange the marriage, travelling back and forth with his son, uh, the parents travelling with their son, Samson. And somewhere along the way in this trip, Samson uh, runs into a lion. And the story goes, apparently, that lions, when they reach a certain age, they're basically kicked out of the pride and they have to wander around and fend for themselves. And they're usually very aggressive as they're kind of setting up their own territory. And so this might be what happened. That this was a young lion that was out and about in a very aggressive state. And um, Samson comes face to face with it. And they have to fight. And what does Samson do? Use his bare hands. He destroys the lion. And this wonderful feat of strength. So now we get this sign again. This is an incredible guy. This is a guy who's been set apart. God is working in him powerfully. So there's kind of these two sides to this story: the wonderful deeds of mighty strength in the Lord, and some terrible, foolish decisions. Later on, as they're making another trip through that area, on their while they're arranging the marriage. Samson goes and has a look at the body of the lion, and he sees that there is honey in the lion. There's a hive that is set up in the carcass of the lion. And so he takes some of the honey and eats it and gives some to his mum and dad. But if you remember, Nazarites weren't meant to have anything to do with dead bodies. Now, the Nazarite vow doesn't say anything explicit about animal bodies. Like, we're not told they have to be vegans and they're not allowed to eat meat. But there is there is a connotation here, I suppose, that he is somewhat careless around dead bodies if he's happy to go and touch dead lions. And later on, he'll be touching dead donkeys as well to get a donkey's jawbone. So we're wondering, maybe he's being a little bit careless about his vows. And with the, with the thing where he gives the honey to his mother and father, when you read that, I have flashbacks to Eve where it says she took some of the fruit and she gave it to her husband. And it's a similar structure here. Samson took some of the honey and he gave it to his mother and father. It it might just be a little tiny link, but I think there's something going on there With there's this kind of a deception or there's a a carelessness with God's law. And another thing that tips us off to something not being quite right with Samson is that where is he going? He's going down to Timnah in the vineyards. This is a guy who's not supposed to have anything to do with alcohol, and he's travelling through the alcohol region, so to speak, the vineyards. And then he's throwing the wedding, and there's a presumption that well, there's going to be a lot of wine at this wedding. Now we're not told that Samson breaks his vow, but as we've already seen, he seems to be play a bit fast and loose. He's not willing to be separated. He's not willing to be different. So at his wedding, and she's throwing. The weddings take several days. And i'm not sure of the order of events but one presumes that the union is consummated sometime in that period and but also as is tradition with these weddings is that their groom has a, a, a cohort that go with him they has companions and samson doesn't have any friends down there with him and so the philistines supply him with 30 friends <laughs> renter friends they're, they're his friends for the the duration to look after him uh, to help him out as the guest of honor as groom and Samson sees an opportunity. I'm going to get one over on these guys. I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to make myself wealthy by taking a little bit from these 30 guys. And he enters into a, a bet, a riddle with these guys. In verse 13, Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle on you, to you. If you can tell me what this is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I'll give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, Then you shall give me 30 linens, garments, and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. So uh, linen garments and changes of clothes were very valuable. It's not like they could go down to Target and buy a t-shirt for $2. Like it was, there was a serious thing to be able to uh, weave linen, weave clothes, to sew them all together. And so they were quite a significant purchase. You were probably rather wealthy if you had two good sets of clothes. Um, these are the kinds of things that um, they would live uh, spend a lot of time in um, yeah, so basically he's asking for a significant gift you might you might think of it like thousands of dollars worth if you're he's saying, look each of you can give me a gift that's worth thousands of dollars for my wedding if you can't get this riddle but on the other hand, I will give you each a change of clothes um, if you, if you can answer it. And they start to get worried that they're going to have to fork out a lot of money. But in the scheme of things, it's all divided up 30 ways, so it shouldn't be too bad. But the riddle was, he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat, out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days, they could not solve the riddle. So they're trying, they're trying, they're trying. But Samson is manipulating them because he's using a situation with the lion and the honey that is very niche, like a very unique experience to him. And he's trying to make that a riddle. And of course, they're not going to guess it. They haven't had the experience of pulling honey out of a lion carcass. It's not a universal thing that people are likely to be able to put together. So he's manipulating them to try and get rich, get all these clothes. But then the guys start to get a little bit irritated. They're thinking, they're thinking, they can't figure it out. They're trying to work it out. And so in order to try and figure it out and not have to foot the bill for the clothes to make these gifts to Samson, they go to his wife and they try to get to Samson through his new bride. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, coax your husband into explaining the riddle for us or we'll burn you and your husband's household to death. Did you invite us here to steal our property? And so the poor wife here is now caught between a rock and a hard place. She's got her family, she's got her people. They've made threats against her life and she's got her new husband what is she going to do who's she going to be loyal to being caught um being caught like this being caught between your family and your spouse is a place that many of us have experienced and in here you can see how toxic it is it's either steal the answer so we can get out of having to give a gift uh, and or we'll kill your family We'll destroy your house. It's a bit unfair to put that burden on her because she is now married to Samson. She should be loyal and faithful to him. But also Samson's not without guilt because he's the one who's kind of tricking them in the first place. But what does the wife do? She gives in and she manipulates Samson into giving her the answer so that she can pass it along. And how does she do it? With crying and sobbing and... Um, Pressing him, pestering him. Samson's wife wept over him and said, you only hate me, you do not love me. You put a riddle to my people and you've not told me what it is. And he said to her, behold, I've not told my father or mother and shall I tell you? And Samson would eventually give in to being pressed. In verse 17, she wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted. And on the seventh day, he told her because she pressed him hard. And then she told the riddle to her people. So what did she do? She betrayed her husband. What a way to start a marriage. What a way to start a family. To betray your new husband in the first days, before the marriage feast is even over. Now, I heard an anecdote the other day that there was a group of students. I think they were Bible college students or something like that. And they were asked by their teacher to list some of the sins of men. And they had no trouble rattling off a bunch of things that are common sins for males. You know, things like anger or lust or being too domineering and so on. They had no trouble finding a whole bunch of things to say. But then the teacher said, okay, well, what are some of the common sins of women? And there was silence. Eventually somebody piped up and said, ah, oh, having low self-esteem. So the best that these students could come up with was that these women, it's a sin for them not to love themselves enough. for, for some reason in our cultural moment, one of our taboos is the sins of women. Now, not all women are guilty of these sins, just like all, not all men are guilty of the sins that often uh, are found in men. But there are stereotypes for a reason. They don't come out of thin air. Not all men are guilty of the sins of men. Not all women are guilty of the sins of women. But they lay out for us some of the things that we are likely to fall into. What might be a trap for us. Because we're born in the image of God in two distinct genders. And because of our differences, each gender has... We're susceptible to different sins. And God dedicates space in the Bible to not only outlining the potential pitfalls of men, but also potential pitfalls for women as well. In our passage today, we have a lived example of some of the pitfalls that women can fall into. And in particular, we're talking about the manipulative wife. And if you look in Proverbs, in chapter 5, verses 3 to 4, it says, The lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end, she is bitter as wormwood sharp as a two-edged sword we have this this representation of the manipulative woman who uses her words to get her way but in the end it's it's bitter in the end it brings destruction and there are other proverbs about uh, the the pressing wife the nagging wife no, um, the the quarrelsome wife who pushes and pushes her husband, and he's it says it's um, better to live in the corner of a rooftop on the house than to live with a quarrelsome wife. Now this is a this is a cliche. Uh, it's it's talked about in the scriptures because it's something that ladies can fall into. You have to guard yourself against this sin of using your mouth to hurt and and manipulate. You have a huge influence on those around you, especially your spouses, your children, and your parents. You affect them with your words and how you speak to them and what you say and your choices. And so, ladies, I wonder if you would be like Eve or like this bride in this story who is nurturing sin and division in the family. Or perhaps you might look to a better example like Axa earlier in the chapters of judges who was building a household and trying to create a great inheritance for her family as much as uh, Samson is to blame for the women troubles that he faces it does not take away the guilt from people like his wife who connived and manipulated their way i think that Samson should ha- uh, Samson's wife should have revealed the problem to her husband and said look this is the situation and then samson would have been either able to kind of give in to her and say look i know that i'm going to suffer but i'm going to suffer for your sake and give you the answer so you can tell your mates or he could have taken matters into his own hands and as samson is the guy with great strength we could all imagine how that would unfold but by forcing samson to provide the companions with 30 sets of clothes the lady was stabbing herself in the foot she was basically bankrupting this new family that was just starting Thankfully, Samson has a way to get hold of the clothes and keep his side of the bargain. And God uses this awful, toxic situation as a to land a first strike against the Philistines. So Samson's not happy. He knows he has to go and fetch these clothes because they got the answer out of him through his wife. And so he, interestingly, in the spirit of the Lord, goes on a mission. The spirit of the Lord came upon him, rushed on him, and he went down to Ashkelon, and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his farmer's father's house and Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. So Samson goes out in hot, you know, he's angry and he goes out in a self-serving way. But the Lord is working through him. The, Lord, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and he went and started destroying God's enemies. So, just remember, when you talk about the work of God's Spirit and the Spirit of the Lord coming upon you, striking down 30 of God's enemies in battles is within the realm of possibility. Now, I'm not saying anybody should go out and have a physical fight with anybody, but what I'm saying is that God's Spirit works in the world. It works in people to do mighty deeds of faith. But Samson, in the end, who's being self-serving, He's being self-serving. He has great strength. He is the Spirit of the Lord. He's consecrated to the Lord, but he's using it for God's people? No, God's using him to serve his plan despite Samson's choices. And so I think it's a moment for us to stop and consider our privilege. I do mean privilege as the world uses it, something that you need to be ashamed about, but I want to ask you, how are you using your strength and abilities? How are you using... What God has endowed you with is it for self-serving reasons because you've been consecrated to the Lord in Jesus you are not your own you were bought with a price in Corinthians it says do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God you are not your own for you're bought with a price so glorify God in your body if you belong to Jesus you have God's spirit at work in you And so the question is, will you serve him? Will you remain consecrated to him? Will you stick with him? Or will you turn aside and be polluted with the things of the world? You've been saved from the world, consecrated to Jesus, like that toothbrush. You've been cleansed and you're ready to be used by God. But when we sin, when we turn aside from following God, it's like we keep putting that toothbrush in the dirt. You've been cleansed. So you serve God in your bodies. So as we close this off, one of the things that we haven't really talked about yet is Jesus. How does Jesus fit into this? Well, Samson was a foreshadow of a greater deliverer. Samson was a foreshadow of an even greater deliverer. As mighty as Samson's acts and deeds of of, of strength are, Jesus was greater. But we see many of the patterns that were unfolded in Samson's life unfolding in Jesus' life. He was announced by angels. Angels appeared to both mom and dad. He was born in an unexpected conception. He was consecrated for a special service to God. He was a special chosen son who would deliver Israel. He accomplished mighty feats. He went and dueled with the devil in the wilderness. He went and cast out demons. He calmed the storm. He fed the hungry. He sparred with the intellect of the religious leaders. And he never backed down from his mission. He never compromised. He was never off fraternizing with the enemy. He was always on mission, following through without compromise. He remained faithful all the way through. And because of his diligence, because of his active obedience, he delivered a whole kingdom out of the tyranny of Satan, sin and death. He delivers his people. He's delivered us. And we're going to celebrate that now with this sign here.